Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and popular culture. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Bruce Markison, and as always, I'm joined by producer and co-host Tracy Asteria. Tracy, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Bruce. How are you tonight? Good. We're just within a few days of the the great holiday, Halloween, and we're going to be talking about that extensively today. Uh, On today's program, we're honored to have really one of the great historians of horror culture. He is David J. Scal, who has written countless books about horror history and its impact on popular culture. He has written the definitive biography of Dracula author Bram Stoker titled Something in the Blood. He's also written a number of comprehensive histories of horror films, including the era of Universal Studios horror. And today, David joins us to talk about the history of Halloween, which he explored beautifully in his book, Halloween, the History of America's Darkest Holiday. David will also be talking to us about his newest project, something that has just begun, It's an extensive Blu-ray and DVD commentary on some of the restored works of director Todd Browning. This new release is called Todd Browning's Sideshow Shockers. So we'll talk about that as well. David, welcome to the show. It's it's great to talk to you after uh, a few years of not being able to see you because of the pandemic and uh, the end of our favorite horror convention here in upstate New York, where we used to see yes, each other I, all the time. I keep hearing that uh, Scarecon might come back, and I hope it does. Uh, it was I, I was a regular there for about 10 years, I think. Oh, and wow. that's where I met you. Yeah. I had a chance to interview you for my book, and uh, you were great uh, doing that. And, of course, uh, you did a number of panels for... The Scaricon Convention at Verona, which was uh, run by uh, Jim Johnson for so many years. I hope Jim is able to bring it back at some point. David, let's begin our show by delving into the history of Halloween. And I'm going to give you my understanding of it. And you can tell me what is right, if anything about it, what is wrong. But my understanding is that Halloween originated with this ancient Celtic festival of Samhain. Uh, The Celts, who lived about 2,000 years ago, celebrated their new year on November 1st, and they believed that on the night before the new year, that would be October 31st, that the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead kind of became blurred. Is this correct? Do I have anything wrong or anything right here? No, you basically have it right, but I think it goes even deeper and further back than that. I think we can trace some of the... Uh, roots of Halloween back to um, uh, the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which also uh, influenced Christmas. And um, of course, we know that Halloween is the nightmare before Christmas. Mm. And uh, holidays tend to be uh, very literally movable feasts. They they uh, inform each other. They, they overlap a lot. But um, Halloween, as we know it today, seems to come from uh, uh, Scotland and Ireland and the uh, and has definitely uh, uh, Celtic roots and we the Druids didn't leave us any uh, uh, written accounts of their uh, uh, of their activities and their festivals so we uh, we we infer a lot of it but the uh, 
definitely, you know, the time of the harvest historically and traditionally has always been uh, um, a matter of life and death. You know, if the harvest doesn't go well, uh, um, uh, you can forget about it. You know, I mean, mm. the uh, so it's not surprising that various kinds of celebrations and rituals would arise to uh, to to recognize this fact. And um, uh, it's kind of been uh, literalized into well, this is a time when we can. Uh, be in contact with the other side, not we may be on the verge of going to the other side. Um, and uh, but it, but it, uh, it came to America after the uh, potato famine when um, so many millions uh, you know came from from Ireland to North America and they brought with them a lot of the, um, the Scottish traditions that had been, filtered through Irish tradition and and um, and so some of the uh, 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 the history of pranking for instance the history of um, of, of begging for food which goes back uh, quite a ways I mean we see in uh, in Shakespeare in the play two gentlemen of Verona um, a character refers to beggars at Hallowmas. And uh, most holidays, you know, have something to do with food or the exchange of food or uh, rituals involving food. And, and uh, Halloween is no different. But the, uh, the, the kind of pranks that uh, went over fairly uh, innocently in, in rural Ireland and Scotland did not go over so well in uh, urban America of the late uh, 1800s. Um, the potato famine was in the uh, in the, the late uh, 1840s and early 50s, mm -hmm. and it was after that that this huge diaspora, the Irish diaspora, uh, began uh, its steady march, uh, you know, toward our our, our shores. But uh, the um, the idea of the the jack o' lantern began in Ireland, not as a pumpkin. Pumpkins were not indigenous to that part of the world, and but but uh, hollowed out turnips, which were uh, uh, which could hold a candle and were uh, uh, the very first you know expression of that kind of thing. And then, of course, the pumpkin was discovered by the immigrants in America, and it made such a, uh, a better, uh, a much better uh, uh, vehicle for, you know, for candlelight. And, but it wasn't originally associated with Halloween in America. And again, here we're getting this uh, cross-fertilization of, of, of holidays. But until as, as late as the 1860s, or 70s, the jack-o'-lantern, the uh, North American jack-o'-lantern with the pumpkin, was associated with Thanksgiving, and it was called the Harvest Effigy. And um, only later it became appropriated, you know, uh, into something almost exclusively for uh, 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 for Halloween. But uh, that's interesting. I never knew the jack-o'-lantern had any association with Thanksgiving. Oh, me neither. 
it really did. And uh, I found accounts of um, uh, Thanksgiving Day uh, parades of, uh, um, of children. Trick-or-treating was originally associated in America with Thanksgiving. And um, kids would take their pumpkins and they would dress up in costumes and march around uh, uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn. And, uh, and it uh, exactly all the forces that uh, uh, pushed these activities toward Halloween are uh, a matter of some, just a matter of conjecture. It happened, though. And the... Um, and so it's been uh, uh, it's it's been going ever since. Uh, the idea of trick or treating, the phrase trick or treat, does not appear anywhere in print uh, until the late 1930s, uh, maybe as late as 1940. Um, even though there was there was begging and there there were uh, uh, treats being dispensed, um, trick or treating came. After the, the during the depression, Halloween uh, revelry got kind of raucous in America, and it was a, the depression was a very uh, delicate time. Um, the, the bottom had really fallen out of, of the economy. There were, frankly, fears of uh, uh, political unrest and even revolution. And uh, this is not all that, uh, you know, far after the uh, the Russian Revolution. And um, so in order to channel these energies, um, controlled celebrations, the uh, custom of trick-or-treating um, uh, to avoid having a, a prank uh, played on you, um, it, 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 uh, some of these pranks, I mean, they, uh, they got quite dangerous. I mean, they, they were they, were, they involved sometimes arson or throwing things in front of moving, uh, uh, uh locomotives. Oh my goodness. And, uh, was this and, in Europe or America? America. And this there was a lot America. of vandalism. And so, uh, uh, civic groups and schools and church groups all uh, did their best to, uh, you know, encourage this new, Kind of um, you know sanitized thing. You could get your you could get your uh, prank in, and maybe the prank was just telling a joke in exchange for for a treat. But uh, uh, and and so the uh, the customs you know began to settle in, and uh, trick or treating really took off though after uh, World War II. Uh, there was sugar rationing during the war, of course. And in the 1950s, the, uh, the great uh, uh, candy manufacturers really were given a, um, a new lease on life by the, uh, uh, the new abundance of, of, of sugar and disposable income and all kinds of things. And um, it, it was in the early 50s that uh, Walt Disney produced a cartoon called Trick or Treat, which uh, at, at the moment that uh, just millions of people were migrating to suburbia and having to come up with their own uh, you know, traditions and celebrations, um, it was a very different landscape than the, the urban landscape they were, uh, um, they were fleeing from. 
um, Trick or Treat provided um, a, a template, uh, basically an instruction manual for this kids is how you do it. And uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and their Uncle Donald, <laughs> and a uh, and a local witch. Um, um, basically, it, it was a major milestone in the transformation of Halloween into this uh, major economic juggernaut. I mean, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. David, what about the practice of wearing costumes, masks? Does does that go as far back as as Celtic times, or is that more recent? We don't have many uh, records of of that. We know that uh, uh, at least we can we can go back as far as the uh, Victorian era, and Queen Victoria herself had uh, Halloween celebrations at uh, Balmoral Castle in in Scotland, and there are accounts of uh, costumed uh, uh, revelers and and imps and devils and and things like that. Uh, uh, masquerade, of course, has a long, long tradition, and that goes back to. Um, uh, to Saturnalia and to uh, you know classical times, and um, there hasn't been any. There's there's not a direct line anywhere in the history of any of our holidays. They're constantly zigzagging and intersecting and influencing each other, and um, um, people a few hundred years ago would not recognize you know what <laughs> we're doing now in America on October 31st. Oh, wow. Um, I'm from Canada, and I'm just wondering, has any of your research involved any Canadian traditions that you might want to be able to share? Yes, uh, I happen to uh, be working. I was teaching at the University of Victoria one fall session and uh, was just delighted to see uh, some of the traditions that had been imported uh, from England to Canada, but Mm. not to the states uh bonfires for instance uh were everywhere fireworks and this uh goes back to a uh, guy fox day you know the uh, the, uh, the gunpowder plot and that almost uh you know uh, toppled uh, parliament back in the uh, uh 1700s um set in motion its own um kinds of celebrations and effigies and costumes and uh, that uh, Guy Fox mask that you um, sometimes uh, see or don't recognize as a Guy Fox mask. <laughs> but it's... Uh, um, is it, that it, the one from the movie V is for Vendetta? Is that the Guy Fox mask? I think it is, yes. It's yeah. appeared so many different places. but um, It's very disturbing. It. It is, and uh, all the reason more for it to show up, and uh, and now like in places like Southern California and the the um, and the Southwest part of the United States, uh, the Mexican Day of the Dead is um, also cross uh, uh, fertilizing with, uh, with 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 Halloween, and um, there's often a, a blend. Uh, you know, of these celebrations. Um, I'm about ready to go to, uh, I'll be celebrating Halloween in Spain this year. Oh, wow. uh, um, 
one of my book, The Monster Show, is having its 30th anniversary edition come out next week in um, in Spain. And so I'm going to San Sebastian and Madrid and Barcelona. And uh, in San Sebastian, there's a, um, a horror and fantasy film festival that uh, starts just below uh, before Halloween and then continues into the first um, uh, week of November and incorporates the Day of the Dead as well as, you know, the um, uh, traditional European Halloween. And uh, I'm fascinated to see what happens. I'm going to, uh, I know I'm going to be taking a lot of pictures and <laughs> and uh, uh, swapping stories with people. I'm just very curious as how, uh, how and, and these are very different areas of Spain, you know, uh, San Sebastian's in the Basque country. Mm-hmm. And uh, Madrid is in the, the center, and it's uh, uh, pretty much what we think of as, uh, you know, Castilian uh, Spanish culture. And then Barcelona, uh, again, again, you have Catalan and um, very different accents in Spanish and uh, different you have the basque language and you have the catalan language itself uh separate and they all approach these holidays uh i mean people take any uh you know excuse to have a um a holiday and halloween has always been this transgressive holiday that is all the more attractive to people you know it's uh, uh traditionally it kind of has something in common with the medieval Feast of Fools, where um, there was a role reversal. You know, the uh, the commoners uh, for one day could uh, could act like royals and uh, um, and and um, blow off steam, basically. Right. And that happens at Halloween as well today. And, uh, and it's, there are things about it, though, that are particularly American. You know, Halloween is the time where, as Americans, we're told um, we are basically unbound. We have, we can become anyone we want or anything we want. And uh, in real life, we can't. But uh, on Halloween, we like to make good on that uh, on that promise and uh, and uh, and reinvent ourselves and of course America has always been this this land of, of reinvention so it's not surprising that uh, it is in America where it has become this this economic uh, uh, juggernaut you know as well as a uh, fun celebration it seems to be everybody's favorite holiday it is. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, Christmas is a bigger holiday, but a lot of people, you know, find Christmas like Thanksgiving to be a basic pain in the neck. You know, <laughs> and you have to you have to put up with the, the with the relatives and the in-laws and and the kids. And and it's, it's very stressful. But uh, Halloween is the opposite of all of that you know no. um it's a lot like um uh, uh you know uh, festival uh in, in latin countries as well uh, and um 
And then when you see what Tim Burton did with, uh, you know, A Nightmare Before Christmas, you realize just how much these uh, uh, holidays complement each other and uh, echo each other. And uh, it's uh, just, you know, part of the whole evolution of human celebration. Exactly. Given everything that you've researched on Halloween and everything that you love, is there anywhere specific in this world that you would love to celebrate if you had the chance? If I had the chance, well, when I wrote the original book, I wanted to, um, and it just became impossible for um, financial re- it, it's great if you have a publisher with very deep pockets and <laughs> I, I wanted to go to uh, Oaxaca in uh, Mexico to see the uh, they're very big and spectacular you know Day of the Dead um, uh, celebration I would urge people who haven't uh, done it yet to try out Salem Massachusetts oh, nice. uh, which probably is the most uh, uh, extravagant uh, local Halloween celebration anywhere, and they take full advantage of their uh, historical connection with with uh, with witchcraft. Um, even though those poor witches were not real witches, and they didn't ride broomsticks, <laughs> uh, 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 they, they they were they were sad victims. But uh, uh, now, even the Salem uh, Police Department has a logo of a witch on a broomstick on their police cars. Oh, interesting. I didn't so know Halloween that. Halloween really devoured the whole, the whole place. And every business in town seems to uh, transform itself into uh, uh, something, something creepy. And um, I was just watching some footage of their, uh, their, their Halloween parade uh, that uh, looks like a lot of fun. And I haven't seen anything like it. Quite anywhere. I, I've only spent one Halloween in Salem, and I wish I could do it every year. Oh wow! Now well, I live. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> what about a place like New Orleans? Have you been there? And have you been there at Halloween time? I have not, but I assume um, Halloween there takes on much of the the uh, the, the personality of Mardi Gras. Um. I can't report on that directly, but my, I would put money on it. <laughs> that is, and they certainly know how to. Uh, uh, I know when Anne Rice was still living in in New Orleans in the Garden District, uh, she would open her mansion for a, uh, a big Halloween celebration, and uh, um, St. Charles Avenue from the Garden District to the French Quarter must have been something, something to behold. Mm. Oh wow. David, the title of your book, you refer to Halloween as America's darkest holiday. And you've, you've already given us some, some hints about that, the, the mischief, the pranks, some of which borderline dangerous, maybe completely dangerous. So there, there's clearly a history here that tells us Halloween is not solely about fun and games. It hasn't been like that uh, for a while. And I, I think to some of the the photographs I see on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, people will post pictures of youngsters wearing masks and costumes, probably in the 1930s and 40s. And some of them are so sinister looking and 
really disturbing to see kids walking around in things like this. Oh, yeah. They, um, uh, you know, handmade objects. I mean, Disney was the first to actually uh, mass produce, you know, Halloween masks and and that sort of thing. And uh, I think Mickey Mouse was one of the first. But that was uh, fairly late in the game. That was, you know... um, probably around World War II, the beginning of World War II. But uh, prior to that, it was a homemade affair. And um, there, there was a lot of creative energy and, uh, you know, some of it very, very sinister. And I absolutely agree. Go back and look at uh, antique uh, photo postcards of um, how Halloween was celebrated in the uh, um, early part of the 20th century. And, um um, lots of inspiration, you know, if you're tired of the um, uh, <laughs> overly corporatized, uh, you know, version of Halloween we seem to fall back on so easily today. When you were growing up, I, if I'm not mistaken, you were from Cleveland, yes. I believe. So when you were young, let's say seven, eight, nine, ten, and you went trick-or-treating as a child, did you really enjoy dressing up? Did you like wearing the scary costume? Was that was that part of your deal? No, it was the candy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I always, uh, you know, I never, I always looked forward to it because of the candy and all the, you know, the running around and uh, looking at other people's costumes. Uh, but I always procrastinated and I always uh, um, never did the uh, the kind of, Halloween costume that I probably would do today. Yeah. Um, but now that I'm always uh, on the road on Halloween, I, I never get to. I'm always in a uh, uh, in, in giving a talk to an audience, or uh, uh, people often say, "David, what are you going to be?" You know, for Halloween this year, and I say, "Well, uh, I'm going to be the most terrifying monster of them all." A talk show guest <laughs> and uh, talk shows have been uh, you know supplanted by podcasts and and here I am I, I spend the, the the second half of October basically doing back-to-back uh, uh, talks about Halloween and monsters and uh, whatever you know people want to uh, dig out of me by the way you do a very good imitation of Boris Karloff uh, <laughs> well, thank I, you. I've heard you do that in other places and you're you're pretty much you're pretty much spot on. Well, thanks. I did it. I did it for uh, Boris's daughter, uh, Sarah Karloff, and she approved it. So I felt very empowered <laughs> uh, to go out and do it, uh, perhaps more often than I should. Yeah. One of the points that you make in the book is about some people, uh, very strong fundamentalists who I guess even today decry Halloween, say that it's it's blasphemous, sacrilegious. Tell us a little bit about that phenomenon. Um, yeah, I remember I once was a Halloween spokesman for uh, Universal Studios Florida, and they sent me around the, the whole state just doing one radio show after another, and they booked me into one that was a... Uh, um, a Christian fundamentalist radio station... And the um, I don't think the 
the interviewer knew what to expect, but I really didn't expect the, the, the kind of uh, full-throated denunciations I was getting. I mean, I was basically accused of being a devil worshiper. And, really? uh, you know, and it, it's, uh, it, it was a little unnerving. I, I'm, um, fortunately, you know, it was just going out over the air. There was nobody outside the station picketing. Or <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but they felt like, I felt like they might at any moment. Um, I think it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I, I think the, the um, far-right Christianity that... It seems to have very little to do with the uh, actual teachings of Jesus anymore. Um, it's more like devil worship itself. I mean, my God, I I think what passes itself off as Christianity, and I'll put very thick quotation marks around that, you know, um, with all of its emphasis on uh, uh, Old Testament cruelty and nothing whatsoever to do with the teachings of Jesus, is more like devil worship than any kind of uh, uh, a traditional religion I'm aware of. So uh, I, I don't, uh, I fortunately don't bump into these people very often, but it can be unnerving when, uh, when you do. And I think uh, um, any steps to curtail Halloween, though, uh, tends to backfire. Mm -hmm. because the more uh, kids especially are told they can't do something, the more they're going to want to do it. And uh, the more books you take out of the, <laughs> their school libraries, the more uh, they're going to go out and find them. I don't think their elders realize how easy it is to uh, access this material uh, other places than a school library. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, uh, well, and, and I definitely, I understand what you're saying about some of the the extreme religious uh, philosophies that are opposed to Halloween. I, I will say this though, as a as a practicing Catholic, um, I've in my church here locally in in Cooperstown, New York, uh, the priests that we've had in recent years have actually been very supportive of Halloween. They've embraced it. So uh, maybe some of that attitude is changing. Well, it. Um you know, a lot of this goes back to uh, when the church, uh, you know, after the Middle Ages, um, started converting uh, large numbers of people. Um, they accepted a certain amount of overlap between pagan teachings and uh, uh, the teachings of the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, Halloween has always been, by the Catholic Church, really, really tolerated, not endorsed, but, you know, it's there. And, um, and in uh, Latin uh, countries, you know, with the Day of the Dead, it is not um, as, it can be quite celebratory, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's also heartfelt. You know, it, it, it is uh, paying, uh, paying tribute to those who have passed. And uh, so it's, it's a more complicated kind of uh, uh, religion, but it follows, you know, it is followed by the, uh, the Feast of All Souls, which is endorsed by the, uh, uh, the church. But it's, so it's in this, and, and Halloween um, is not on any church calendar. 
but uh, it has a lot to do with uh, uh, life, death, the afterlife. Uh, even if, if uh, and I, I think the church at some point decided uh, it's harmless enough. And if it's uh, in the case of you know converting the pagans, it brings new people into the fold. All the all the uh, all the better. The uh, a, a lot of the you know the the, the Christian holidays were I, it was Pope Gregory I believe uh, in establishing the Gregorian calendar really moved around the holidays. Christmas was originally a uh, uh, a spring holiday, and uh, after the Gregorian calendar, it was moved, you know, to uh, coincide w- with what was the pagan festival of Saturnalia, and uh, and, the, and the same thing with the harvest festivals, and uh, so um, it's. Uh, It's transgressive, but it's also um, embracing. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very uh, it's very paradoxical, you know, uh, kind of holiday, yeah. and um, it's it's hard to get a hold of, you know, just what is, you know, Halloween, and uh, or what is any other, you know, holiday because uh, um, it. Uh, can avoid being put in a box very, very well. Yeah. And, uh, and so we keep chasing it and we keep, uh, it keeps evolving. New um, elements are, uh, you know, brought into the, uh, into the fold. And uh, I, one, one thing I, I like about Halloween these days is that it has become a, um, and I think COVID helped with this. Uh, if help is the word, it certainly influenced it. Um, people had to find new ways to, you know, ce- celebrate Halloween. Mm. Um, and um, at home, uh, you know, fell back on, you know, traditional uh, um, folk craft. And uh, uh, more people are making their own costumes these days than, uh, than ever before. Mm. And um, so it becomes a, t- a time of um, um, of bonding, you know, with with family members, mm-hmm. uh, with the local community. I mean, I don't know how many people told me um, that uh, Halloween was the only holiday where they got to see the neighbors, <laughs> wow. or the only time they got to see the neighbors, not just on holidays, but uh, and they looked forward to it on that that level alone. You know, it's and, great in, in our neighborhood here, we see dozens and dozens of kids out in the streets of Cooperstown on a Halloween night, trick-or-treating, families trick-or-treating, groups of friends. I mean, you, you look all the way down the street and, you know, you can't go 10 or 12 feet without seeing kids in costumes. It's great no. to see the community come together. I love it. No, it was, uh, it, it was, it was wonderful. The first uh, Halloween, um, after COVID here was, it was like all this pent up energy, you know, uh, came out and the streets were just awash with, with kids, uh, 
kind of the way it was up in uh, 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 Victoria, BC, where I uh, I was teaching that one that one Halloween many years ago, and it was like stepping back into uh, Ray Bradbury's uh, you know nineteen twenties America Halloween, and I uh, it was so much fun and bonfires are just absolutely hypnotic. Um, and uh, I had never seen one, you know, in oh, wow. uh, conjunction with Halloween. And uh, um, and th- there were many of them. And I'd never seen fireworks, you know, used at Halloween either. And uh, uh, but it was uh, it, it was it was good natured. And um, I sense that it has become good we we haven't had many of these uh, you know these urban legends about uh, you know halloween poisonings and and uh, and that sort of thing kind of polluting the uh, the atmosphere uh, people seem to have gone back to embrace a, uh, a more nostalgic you know um, approach to halloween um I'm glad you brought that up. Those stories about razor blades in the apples and uh, sinister adults poisoning candy, almost all of those have been debunked, correct? Yes. It, it, um, you know, we like to tell ourselves scary stories. And I think for adults, it is that kind of, uh, even if it's ridiculous, uh, we, uh, you know, latch onto it. And of course, kids feed it. Uh, I mean, many of these, uh, 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 supposed cases of uh, booby-trapped candy and and that sort of thing are uh, have been planted by the children themselves, mm. who they feel that oh well, this is what they're telling us they want, <laughs> so we'll, yeah. we'll give it to them. And it's but uh, really Halloween is a very safe, uh, except for uh, an increased number of traffic accidents on. Halloween because of masks and limited visibility and, you know, kids running around in the dark. Um, that's something I would tell everybody to you know be very cautious about. But uh, it is no more dangerous for kids than any other time of the year. There was one case where uh, um, a boy was killed in Texas uh, from cyanide you know, in his candy. And it turned out it was his own father mm. who had done it in a, in a horrible plot to collect insurance money. And it was not the stranger, uh, in the dark down at the end of the street. It was, uh, you know, like, like almost every other kind of, uh, murder or a crime of passion. It's somebody, you know, yeah. when it happens and it does not really happen with, with Halloween, except, uh, in our imaginations and in and in the kind of entertainment we like to consume at Halloween, and uh, you know we like to give ourselves a scare, and this is uh, these urban legends are an update on the you know the classic uh, telling of creepy stories around the campfire. David, I had just one final question on Halloween before we turn to the subject of those Todd Browning films, uh, the new um, updated DVD and Blu-rays. When you look at Halloween today, can we say that it is more popular now in America, more fervently celebrated now than ever before? You think that's the case? 
Well, as, uh, from just the economic markers, you know, it is uh, the second biggest um, holiday behind Christmas still. And it, it's, it's always moving ahead. It never retreats. And, um, uh, and I think it's for all the reasons that, uh, that I've said before. We, uh, uh, we relish the chance to uh, be a little transgressive. And uh, we don't have to observe the social niceties, and we can literally be anyone or anything we want. So uh, it embodies a certain aspect of the American dream that we don't get to indulge on other uh, uh, days of celebration. It is a fascinating holiday, no question. Uh, David, let's now talk about your new and ongoing project related to some of the films of Todd Browning. The Criterion Collection has put out fully restored versions of three of Browning's films uh, under the package or title of Todd Browning's Sideshow Shockers. The three movies, The Mystic, uh, 1925, another silent film, The Unknown, from 1927. That one starred Lon Chaney Sr. and Joan Crawford. And then probably the most well-known of the three, uh, Freaks, from 1932. You provide wonderful in-depth commentary and also an introduction for one of the films. Tell us about how this project came about for you. Well, it was something I always wished somebody would do. Um, I did a, uh, back in 2004, uh, Warner Home Video asked me to do a, uh, um, really at the last minute, asked me to do a commentary track for the uh, first DVD release of Freaks. And I did. I was not uh, entirely happy with it. Um, And it uh, was only this past spring that the Criterion Collection, and the Criterion Collection is really the gold standard, you know, for uh, uh, home video, especially for classics and for extras and all that, it got in touch with me, and they uh, engaged me as a consulting producer. Um, uh, many other people were involved in this, I'm, I, I must say. They're, I, I'm not the only uh, commentator on the uh, on the package, and in fact, you won't see me build on the outside of it but i did a new a completely new commentary track for freaks because i've been doing uh additional research into todd browning i published uh, dark carnival the secret world of todd browning way back in 1995 uh i co-authored it with uh, another researcher elias savada and Browning has always been a very difficult character to research because uh, he did not uh, leave any explanation for his his films. Um, and people have been just totally you know, uh, fascinated with, I mean, his uh, Dracula is his most famous picture with Bela Lugosi. Um the reason I wrote my book Hollywood Gothic is that I couldn't find out anything about Browning or the film. And, and uh, we only got so far in 1995, but uh, we have since uh, completely uh, expanded and revised the book. Uh, I did an audio uh, book recording of it just last summer. 
uh, and there will be a special uh, limited edition, um, 500 copies only, uh, signed and numbered by uh, Elias and myself uh, from Centipede Press, which will be coming out uh, very soon. And uh, I encourage anybody who wants it and who can afford it, frankly, to... (laughs) Put put your order in as soon as you hear about it because it's going to be gone almost overnight. But all is not lost because the University of Minnesota Press is then going to uh, uh, do a permanent uh, uh, library edition of it. And I'm just putting the final touches on the picture selections for that now. So that will be out uh, next year. And... Uh, and now we have this uh, this wonderful uh, you know package from Criterion that has uh, uh, has a wonderful documentary that I appear in with a lot of other very knowledgeable folks um, and um, another podcast. Podcasts are finding their way onto as extras onto uh, 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 classic discs from Criterion and and other places. And um, it is um, just so much fun. And you've never seen these films look this good. Um, I was very pleased I was able to convince them to. They were going to do The Unknown and Freaks. And I convinced them to go ahead with uh, The Mystic. Because it is, for some reason, it has been one of the most difficult Browning films to see. It was uh, from 1925. And... uh, it has everything to do with the unknown and freaks and the whole sideshow, you know, ethos of, of uh, Todd Browning. Um, and the, the big surprise is that it seems to uh, possibly have been a direct inspiration for, you know, the novel and uh, film um, Nightmare Alley, uh, the remake that uh, Guillermo del Toro did uh, two years ago is in many ways an homage to Todd Browning and freaks as it is, you know, to William Lindsay Gresham and his, his novel. But uh, it is about uh, a grubby uh, sideshow con artists who uh, penetrate high society with a spiritualist scam. And um, it is just uh, just a delight, and they, they, there, there was a beautiful print of it in the uh, Turner vaults that had been trotted out for occasional film festivals, and um, I said, no, this has got to be seen, especially because uh, Aileen Pringle, who plays the mystic, um, gives a performance that it is absolutely clear that Todd Browning told Joan Crawford to emulate as best she could. Uh, in the unknown, which was one of her very first roles, and she's she's quite striking in it. And uh, I, uh, so it's delirious. I mean, there are other Browning films that could have been added to it, uh, uh, the show and the Unholy Three, which also have, you know, are set in sideshow um, uh, milieus. And um, but maybe this will, uh, you know, kick off. Uh, Listen, I have a feeling it's going to do very well for Criterion. I've been getting a lot of uh, uh, very positive feedback from people. And uh, there is a lot more of Browning out there that needs to be uh, packaged in this way. 
I had no idea Joan Crawford had starred in a Todd Browning film and had worked with Lon Chaney Sr. Now, The Unknown, would you, would you call it a, a, a horror film or is it? It is. Stri- it, yeah. it has a it has a grand guignol uh, aspect to it. In fact, it's very much like the plays that the uh, uh, the Parisian grand guignol, the theater of horrors, did uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and these usually had uh, uh, some just devastatingly, you know, brutal twist at the end of them. And uh, this is a story uh, fueled by the uh, the sudden popularity of Freudian ideas in the 1920s and in, in, in popular culture. And um, Browning knew just how to manipulate them and exploit them. And um, so it is a story set in a circus, and it is a uh, about the, the central character is an armless knife thrower who is not really armless. His name is Alonzo the Armless. That's how he's billed, and it's played by Lawton Cheney, the man of a thousand faces. Uh, uh, in this one, he wears kind of his own face, but uh, pretends not to have arms. And so does the character. He does have arms, but he has to conceal them to hide his criminal past. And he has fallen in love with this, uh, with his uh, uh, circus partner, the, the woman who stands on the, uh, the platform and has, as he throws knives at her with his feet. And uh, she has an absolute terror of being touched by a man, um, seemingly because of trauma in her past, probably having to do with her father, uh, who's a fairly ugly character uh, in, in the film. But uh, it is a tale of obsession that just gets absolutely carried away to the point where uh, Lon Chaney is considering killing two birds with one stone, you know, getting rid of the arms that are uh, uh, evidence of his, uh, you know, past criminality and getting the girl who doesn't want a man who has arms. And, uh, and it has just one of the most uh, emotionally devastating endings of any film. I think it's Todd Browning's greatest uh, achievement. He was really, uh, he may be more famous uh, to mo- modern audiences for his talkies like like Dracula and Freaks. But uh, both th- these films, both the talkies, uh, show that he was uncomfortable with sound. He was by nature, you know, he was a creation, a self-taught creation of the silent cinema. And uh, the unknown is really, I think... Uh, uh, him and Lon Chaney, just at the absolute top of their forms. And this new um, uh, restoration includes 10 minutes of footage that nobody's seen before. They were uh, tucked away in a archive in the Czech Republic and uh, mm. finally put together last uh, year and uh, premiered in Europe and now... Uh, uh, for video by Criterion. and oh, interesting. Uh, it is... This is I, I've introduced many screenings of this film, and um, it's always fun just to watch the audiences. They, they, they cannot believe what they're watching. No. 
that's not going to happen. He's not going to do that. And then the ending, their 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 jaws are on the floor, and uh, it just shows you that uh, you know silent films were uh, much more uh, capable of much more nuance and and uh, dramatic craft than we sometimes give them give them credit for. Um, it uh, the critics hated it. They just thought this is too much. Uh, every every film that Browning and Cheney did was too much for the critics as they hmm. their partnership went on. Uh, but uh, audiences couldn't stay away from it. What about with the uh, the new release of Freaks? Is there additional footage that's been restored added there? There isn't, but uh, there are the, the end credits, which have been missing for uh, ever since the 1940s, uh, were um, beautifully recreated um, on prints that have been seen in recent years. You just you don't see who uh, who who wrote the thing, who photographed it, who edited it, you know, and um, so that that has been um, uh, reinstated. It looks better than it's ever looked, and it's uh, uh, you know high resolution Blu-ray uh, in- incarnation. Uh, but there was a lot cut out. I mean, almost a half hour was cut out. And what I do in my audio commentary is uh, read the uh, bits that have been uh, deleted uh, as we go through the through the film. And uh, so I think it, in some ways, is the most complete presentation of freaks that uh, we're ever likely to uh, um, to see. Uh, it being an hour long, there's only so much you can do with it. Uh, I could have gone on and on, but that's that's what the uh, you know the book is for, and the new edition of Dark Carnival incorporates a lot of uh, a lot of this stuff as well. So there were parts of Freaks that have essentially been lost forever. Yeah, um, almost um, a half hour. I mean, it's wow. it's really quite. Uh, uh, quite shocking, but in those days there was no thought given to why would you want to save um, the stuff that they uh, decided needed needed to be removed. No, uh, nobody was in the early 1930s. Nobody was imagining these pictures, uh, you know, coming back into circulation um, in any way, uh, and. Uh, they would go out for you know a number of weeks. There would be a limited number of, of prints, and uh, many of them would uh, you know fall by the wayside. And uh, you know we're lucky that uh, you know freaks itself, uh, some of the original elements, uh, the, the negative and whatnot, were uh, preserved because they so easily could have been lost. Half of everything Hollywood did in the early days. Like from the uh, beginning of the cinema until, you know, the beginning of the talkies is gone forever. Hmm. Um, it was yard goods, you know. Uh, it, it was uh, it was disposable, and um, the idea that there was something worth conserving um, is a new one in Hollywood. Relatively recently, I mean, serious film studies, uh, you know, were a product of the the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, decades, you know, after some of these films. 
first uh, made their appearance. Tracy, I think you had a follow-up on Freaks. For somebody that's not seen the movie Freaks before, but have heard just different stories about it, would there be anything that you'd want to maybe mention to viewers in advance before watching it, just given the fact that there might be some disturbing factors in that movie? Yeah, I mean, at the time, uh, the thing the reviewers complained about was, you know, the the, the film exploited, uh, you know, human disability. Mm-hmm. And um, which is a bit hypocritical because sideshows and freak shows were very, very much a part of uh, American popular culture in the uh, early part of the uh, the, the century. Mm-hmm. And um, the freaks themselves didn't think of themselves as disabled. They were doing something. They weren't, you know, vegetating in nursing homes. They were, um, and, and they really resented it when uh, do-gooders, uh, as they refer to them of, uh, uh, of, of later years, started uh, you know closing down sideshows and and uh, you're just marginalizing them in terms of uh, ways they could make a living they were all uh, proud of the fact that they were self-sufficient uh, that I mean there, there, there's one uh, the most spectacular you know human anomaly of the film uh, Prince Randian the armless legless man mm-hmm. uh, uh, was able to have a long and happy career um using what he had to his best advantage and uh uh so there, there's a big disconnect between the compassion uh you you want to feel for somebody with uh with with with, with a physical uh, uh defect and uh, what they're actually capable of you know, sometimes it's condescending. And um, so you're seeing it kind of up front. I mean, these people do have distorted bodies, but they're carrying on uh, fairly ordinary lives. They have their their own little romances and intrigues and um, things going on. They have to do laundry and hang it up outside their circus wagons, you know, and it, it's a... Uh, uh, MGM didn't know what it was doing with the film mm-hmm. because Browning came from, uh, you know, a carnival and you know circus background. He he knew these people uh, for real, um, and I'm sure he uh, several of them he had actually uh, probably worked with, you know, at mm-hmm. some time uh, um, earlier on. But uh, MGM was trying to capitalize on the big success Browning had had with Dracula at Universal. Um, Universal thought they were going to steal away Lon Chaney to play Dracula. And uh, and so they did steal away Todd Browning with the idea that he would be directing the film. And um, what no one knew is that, uh, you know, Chaney was dying of cancer by the time Dracula got, uh, got, got filming. But it was a it saved Hollywood. It saved Universal Studios. Imagine how different uh, Hollywood history would be if Universal had folded, you know, in the worst year of the Great Depression 
instead of getting its getting its uh, steam back with uh, Dracula and Frankenstein. They invented monster movies. And over at MGM, uh, Irving Thalberg wanted to uh, capitalize on this and uh, uh, brought Browning back. And the whole idea was to create the ultimate horror movie. And uh, without understanding what that might be. And... Uh, so Freaks is kind of a two-headed cow in a way. Uh, a awful, awful lot of uh, writers had a hand in it and often not knowing what the others were doing. And if something seemed too horrible, they would say, oh, well, we've got to have some comic relief. And so they would bring in, you know, cheesy and very often off-color vaudeville humor into it. So it's a... Mm-hmm. It's a very surreal experience to watch. And I uh, would encourage anybody who hasn't seen it to watch it before you listen to my commentary or read anybody else's uh, uh, you know, take on the film. Just let it wash over you. Okay. And then uh, it's only an hour. You know, you can spend two hours with it. <laughs> it, won't, it won't hurt you. Uh, I promise. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it is a film that anyone who's seen it never, ever forgets it. Nice. Thank you. And when did you say that this package was coming out? If I Did you mention the date it that just it was hit the out? streets. Uh, oh, did it? Last week, October 17th. Okay. So just in time, you know, for the Halloween uh, uh, season and all the attendant publicity. And uh, so they brought it out at the right time. And... Uh, I think it's going to be one of their biggest uh, hits this year. And it was just, I'm honored to, you know, that they uh, thought to ask me to be, to be a part of it. And uh, um, I don't know. I think I'm going to be retiring from Todd Browning and Dracula both. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Soon I've done so many books. I've revised so many books. I've uh, done all that. They're, uh, Maybe one or two tricks up my sleeve yet, but uh, I uh, would like to see what, uh, you know, a new generation of uh, film commentators and historians uh, make of these films. I've done my best to, you know, bring them out of the shadows and bring new attention to them. And uh, I'm uh, very uh, pleased that I've done that. The package of new releases called Todd Browning's Sideshow Shockers, produced by the Criterion Collection. You can go to their website uh, to learn more and to, uh, to purchase the, uh, the DVDs and the Blu-rays. Our guest has been the great David J. Scal, uh, one of the best, if not the best, horror historians around. He has written many books, including Hollywood Gothic, uh, The Monster Show, Dark Carnival, V is for Vampire. That was the first David book that I wrote, uh, that I read, rather. Uh, Halloween, of course, The History of America's Darkest Holiday, Something in the Blood, Fright Favorites. There are many others as well. David, as always, uh, it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, and have a great Halloween. Um, I'll be spending mine, uh, you know, sitting on a plane, very 12 hours on a plane. Uh, But uh, I'm sure you'll be having a great time. Well, best of luck to you on your uh, your your time in Spain. Uh, I assume a couple of weeks we'll we'll cover it for you there. Um, 
yes well i'd like to stay forever anytime i go to a wonderful place like this but i uh i'll be back and i'll be posting about it on facebook and and uh, uh next year i really will dress up for halloween i had something ready to go that was before <laughs> before this uh chance came up but uh i will uh, maybe i'll i'll put it on and put a, a picture on facebook but uh we'll show it to the neighborhood kids next year <laughs> Very good. Well, have a, have a great and a safe trip to uh, to Spain. I hope things go well there for you. Again, our guest has been uh, the uh, terrific writer, historian, author, David J. Scal. Uh, we thank David for being with us. We thank Tracy as well for co-hosting and producing. Happy Halloween to you, Tracy. Hope your day is a good one. Have you settled on a costume, by the way? Have not yet, but um, still working on it. Fingers crossed. All right. I'm going to go as Frankenstein for what it's <laughs> oh. worth. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stay traditional Universal Studios Frankenstein from 1931. Thank you, Tracy and David. We thank all of you for joining us, listening uh, in on this uh, museum of the macabre. And we hope you'll join us next time right here in the ghostly gallery. <laughs>